you to turn into it to John chapter 15, though I have a long introduction before we're going to get there, but that may, that's the first text we'll look at. Um, right now, we're continuing a series of sorts uh, called Pastoral Front Burners. It's just things that God's laying on our hearts uh, to preach about. Um, after Easter, we're going to begin preaching through a book of the Bible again, um, but Today's message is about something I've been meditating on for a couple of months now, which is this mysterious reality called union with Christ. Union with Christ is, simply put, the fact that for a Christian, you are actually joined to Jesus in such an intimate way that it can be said of you that he is in you and you are in him. Uh, that concept is mentioned about 165 times just in the writings of Paul. And he's not the only one who speaks about it. Jesus himself said very clearly in John 14.20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are in him, and he is in you. That's Union with Christ. We're going to look this morning at three main texts that describe that union. Uh, but before we do it, I think I need to set the table, as it were, to explain why it's worth our while to think about this. Uh, I preached a series on this about two and a half years ago, and when I was done, I felt like we weren't there yet. I felt like there was more to say. I thought there was more help that we could get from this. And so that's why this sermon is Union with Christ Revisited. Um, in January, I started reading a book called Union with Christ by Rankin Wilborn, who's a pastor, uh, author that you've never heard of, um, but he's a pastor in Los Angeles. Um, he wrote the book called Union with Christ. It was endorsed by Tim Keller and some other people that I respect. And in the book, he quotes a skeptical friend who asked this question. If the gospel is supernatural, as you say, then why doesn't it seem to make more of a difference in the lives of so many who claim to believe it? That's a good question. I have that question. <laughs> because that is a true observation of many Christians' experience. There's a gap often between the transformed life that we read about that is promised to us in the gospel and, and between that and the lives that we actually live. They don't always match that, what we see there. Peace and love and joy and self-control and all those fruits of the Spirit that we read about aren't always in our lives. We struggle to change bad habits and sin. We don't feel the kind of excitement that we're supposed to feel about God and about heaven and about the possibility of seeing other people come to believe in Jesus. We can have the dilemma that the author had in his own life. He said, I, I, have seen, I had seen enough of Jesus to spoil my enjoyment of the world, but not enough to be content with Jesus alone. <laughs> Many of you might, re might relate to that remark. The reason for the gap, according to the author, is that we don't really believe and live out of the reality of our union with Christ. 
The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 15, Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? (laughs) And for many of us, the answer is no, I don't realize that. And so the solution, according to the author, is to realize that and live out of the good of it. Now, I'm always skeptical of a claim that says, here's the universal solution to all your problems. (laughs) Uh, If a book starts out that way, I think, maybe. (laughs) Experience has shown me that any biblical truth at any moment can make a huge difference in your life. It doesn't have to be union with Christ. However, union with Christ is linked in Scripture to so many of the blessings of salvation, in fact, to all of them, that I do believe that if we can grasp it, if we could live in this reality more, it would help us to live in the good of all that God has promised to us in Jesus. That gap would be smaller. Ephesians 1.3 says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, All the spiritual blessings like forgiveness of sin, being declared righteous in God's eyes, comfort and power from the Holy Spirit, answers to prayer, we can be sure of them because we are in Christ. We are united to him. Realizing that can make a world of difference. I really do believe that. So, our path this morning is to look at three metaphors or word pictures that the scriptures use to describe our union with Christ. They come from Jesus, Peter, and Paul, one each. Union with Christ is mysterious, and mystery can't be simply explained by logical propositions like a user's manual for a computer. It requires pictures. It requires poetry, not just prose. It, It has to reach our hearts, not just our intellect. And that's why the Bible gives us word pictures to show us what is this thing called union with Christ. But before we consider him, let's pray. (laughs) Let's ask the Lord to reveal the mystery to us. And I want to pray along the lines of what Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. He said, I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we may know what is the hope of our calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Lord, we need you to open our eyes. We need the Spirit to enlighten the eyes of our hearts today, to see mysteries and to live in the good of them. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. The three metaphors that we'll look at are these, vine and branches from John 15. Husband and wife from Ephesians 5, and bricks in a temple from 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll start with vine and branches. And if you have a Bible, read, read with, look with me with, at John 15, 4 and 5. The text will also appear on the screen. Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, 
you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's the picture of union. It's like the connection between a vine and its branches. I am the vine, Jesus says. You, disciples, are the branches. So you picture a grapevine. And it's got a main trunk and that main thing sticks into the ground and its roots are down there and all the nutrients are coming up through that main thing, the, the vine. It's the pipeline of the, of the water, the nutrients, everything necessary to stay in the life of the plant. And then there are these smaller branches that are connected to the vine and they receive all of those nutrients and water and everything that they need to live and also to produce fruit, to, to make grapes. So Jesus is saying, when you think about union with me, I want you to think of that picture. I want you to know that you are in me and I am in you the way a vine and a branch are in one another. They are distinct from each other, but they are one plant. They share the same life. Whatever resources the vine has, that's the resources the branch has too. So also you are distinct from me, Jesus says, but you share my very life. All that I have is now yours. You draw strength from me for whatever you need. Because you are in me and I am in you, vine and branches together. My life is your life. We need an example of how this changes things for us. What this looks like in practice. Let me take a command from Jesus to the church that all of us find really hard to do. At least I do. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's hard. If the command was something like, go and eat the food of all nations, I could handle that. <laughs> and there's 140 plus nations here in Aurora that we can eat the food of. You know, we've got the international marketplace, we've got Taste of the Nations Festival or whatever. So we can get an Ethiopian falafel, we can get Greek baklava, we can get Korean barbecue. And I, I can do that. But that's not the command. The command is go and make disciples of all nations. Which means that I'm to persuade Ethiopians and Greeks and Koreans and Pakistanis and Mexicans and Americans to believe that Jesus is the only Savior. And to trust him and to become his followers, his worshipers, to change the whole center of their lives. I look at that command and I say, how am I going to do that? I don't have what it takes to do that, not even a little bit. And when we think that way, we don't even try. Because that's just too much, that's beyond me. But what if you knew, what if you knew that the command to go and make disciples um, carried with it the guarantee that you will have what you need to do that? What if the fruit of making disciples wasn't going to come from your abilities, but from Christ's abilities? 
empowering you? What if Jesus intended all along for you to do it with with him? (laughs) That he would do it with you and he would do it through you. Would that encourage you to try? Well, that is how he intended it to work all along. Because what did he say right after that command? Go and make disciples of all nations. Behold, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Vine and branches. We go together, you and me and I and you, to make disciples. That's how it gets done. By his life and you. I won't say that removes all the mystery, but it does change the challenge. You do have what it takes to make disciples because Jesus lives in you and he has what it takes to make disciples. And you can draw from him everything that you need in order to do it. Because you're connected, vine and branches. And that's the same for every command in the Bible. His life in you is what empowers you to live a transformed life and to do what he calls us to do. That's why Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Vine and branches. Me and him, him and me. I can do all things because of that reality. I can do all things that he calls me to do. And in context, that that includes facing abundance and facing need. I can do both through him. For your encouragement, I want to read you something from the life of Hudson Taylor. Because this realization of being united to Jesus like vine and branches did change his life. And it carried him through decades of missionary work in China. Hudson Taylor lost four children and two wives before he died. All to death. And he endured many hard trials. He was in danger of his life many times. He was in China in the 1800s. The Chinese church today is between 100 and 150 million people. In part because of people like Hudson Taylor who were there. He was a fruitful vine, a fruitful branch. But he was fruitful because he understood this vine and branch connection. Early on, however, you know it's sort of the success part of his life, but early on he struggled with this gap between the life the gospel promises and the way he actually lived. He's like us. He, he, here's what he wrote about himself in his early days as a missionary. This comes from a book, Hudson Taylor, Chi- Gospel Pioneer to China by Vance Christie. So he's reflecting on his earlier life as a missionary. He said, Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. I knew that if I could only abide in Christ, all would be well, but I could not. I began the day with prayer, determined not to take my eye from him for a moment, but pressure of duty, sometimes very trying, constant interruptions, apt to be so wearing, often cause me to forget him. Then one's nerves get so fretted in this climate that temptations to irritability, hard thoughts, and sometimes unkind words are all the more difficult to control. Each day brought its register of sin and failure and lack of power. To will was indeed present within me, but how to perform, I found not. You hear the defeat that he's experiencing. 
the gap between what he wanted to be and what he was, though he was a fervent Christian. He felt the gap that we often feel. Well, all that changed when he got a letter from a friend, a Mr. John McCarthy, who urged him to strive less and think more of all that Jesus is and all that he is for us. And so Hudson began to think about that and lights started to come on. And here's what he said after he had this revelation in his soul. He said, ah, there is rest, I thought. I have striven in vain to rest in him. I'll strive no more. For has not he promised to abide with me? Never to leave me? Never to fail me? I have not got to make myself a branch. The Lord Jesus tells me I am a branch. I am part of him. And have just to believe it and act upon it. I am a member of Christ and may take all I need of his fullness. It was observed of him from that day forward that he was a joyous man, a bright, happy Christian, and that new power seemed to flow from him. Now, he did not stop earnestly seeking God in the spiritual disciplines. (laughs) In fact, he increased his morning devotions to two hours long. (laughs) as a a result of this. But he began to approach life with a different mindset, that he was joined to Christ and that for everything he would ever face, he could take all that he needed of the fullness of Christ for his needs. He could get courage. He could get strength to persevere. He could get wisdom and anything else you can think of. The realization of union with Christ can do that for you also. Vine and branches. Life of Christ in you. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That, that's the first metaphor. So where, does the, where does the power for the Christian life come from? It comes from Jesus in you. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? That's the first word picture. Here's the second one. It tells a little different story. It's husband and wife. This one's from the Apostle Paul. And the text is Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. Again, let's read what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this is a different picture than John 15. Vine and branches is something of the functional picture of union, if you will. It's about where the resources come from to live the Christian life. But Ephesians 5 is a relational picture. It's about how Jesus relates to you personally. uh, What his heart is towards you and what defines your relationship with him. And the picture that best describes the relational aspect of union with Christ is a picture of husband and wife joined in marriage. This mystery of the one flesh union refers to Christ in the church, Paul says. So, think about marriage. Marriage is the most intimate human relationship that we can experience in this life. It's about two people becoming one. So prior to marriage, 
you think in terms of me. After marriage, you think in terms of us. Before marriage, you're going on separate paths, but after marriage, you're going on the same path together. You think and you plan and you act in your mutual best interest. Even the sexual act of marriage it is intended to show us that it's as close as we can get to actually becoming one flesh. It's a rejoicing in the two becoming one. It, it pictures something bigger than the act. It pictures that, that mystery of union with Christ. It's the closest thing we have to trying to get our minds wrapped about in that relationship. And what's to characterize this union above all is the love of the husband for the wife. In Ephesians 5, that's the passage I always take married couples through or engaged couples through uh, at some point. Three times in that passage it says, husbands love your wives. It never says to the woman that you must love your husband. It does say that in Titus. So that's there. But in Ephesians, three times it's husbands love your wives. That's the emphasis that's the dominant characteristic of this un union, the husband loving his wife. And it's all described in there. You can see how Ephesians or, yeah, 5, 28 and 29 describes the love that the husbands are supposed to have. It says, husbands love their wives. They should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Nourishing and cherishing. That, those are words that should describe the husband's love for his wife. Those are terms of endearment. Those are words that communicate tender loving care, we might call it, in an intense personal interest. I'm, I'm very interested in my own health. Naturally, I'm to be just as interested in her health. In all ways, her well-being. I'm intensely have my own personal interest in your welfare. It makes me happy to make you happy. We might say it that way. It's only well with me if it's well with you. Because you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Like Adam says about Eve. Paul says, that's how Christ loves his church. That's how he loves you in union with him. It's a love that goes as far as laying down his own life for your sins so that you could be forgiven and rise with him to new life and be with him forever. Jesus came to purchase a bride on earth. And that bride includes you if you've trusted Jesus. He intends to have you forever. It's an individual love. It's an individual specific nourishing and cherishing of you. So Jesus is saying, when you think about union with me, I want you to think about marriage. I want you to know that you are in me and I am in you the way a husband and a wife are one flesh, the most intimate and committed, loving relationship that we can conceive of. That's the closest thing to describing his love for you. Now, because we live in a world that suffers the effects of the fall and sin, because there's a devil who wants to corrupt everything that's good, 
We know marriage doesn't always give us that picture, does it? But it isn't corrupted marriage that models Jesus' one flesh union with us. It's the ideal marriage that models it. And Ephesians tells us what that should look like. Even if the husbands, we husbands, haven't modeled it the way we should, <coughs> there is a perfect union described there. And that's how you should think about Christ's relationship to you. Though I should say, we do have some great marriages here. <laughs> and we're getting some pretty good examples. How does this change things for us? How does the picture of union as a relationship between husband and wife how does that practically help us? I think one thing is this. Probably one of the biggest contributors to depression, hopelessness, fear of the future, or even reckless disregard for your own life, I think one of the biggest contributors to that is the thought that nobody cares about you. That you don't mean anything to anyone. That your life doesn't matter. That there isn't anyone to catch you when you fall. We can't live like that. Not very well anyway. We'll either despair or we'll go on a rampage or we'll try to fill that vacuum with anything or anybody that can make us feel significant and loved. But we'll never have peace that way. We'll never have true joy. Because everything and everybody will eventually let you down and leave you someday. By death, if not before. They can't be your hope. But there is a hope. Jesus Christ, who loves you better and with more personal commitment to your well-being than anyone else can. And he's proven it by dying on the cross for your sins. That's how committed he is to nourishing and cherishing you. And because he's the king of the universe, he's ruling the universe for your well-being. It is his happiness to make you happy. We don't always understand his ways day by day. It doesn't seem like it, but that's reality. Reality is you are never alone. You are never forsaken. You are never unloved. You matter to him, and he's going to be there to catch you when you fall. If you belong to him, if you're in him by faith. It doesn't always seem that way, I realize that. But like 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things which are unseen. <laughs> this is where we get an idea of the mystery and the unseen. God's word, that's reliable. That tells us what's really going on. And that reality gives us hope. Let's consider one last word picture. Helps us understand union with Christ. And these aren't the only ones in the Bible. These are just all the ones we have time for today. I'll be a little shorter with this one. This one comes from Peter. And it's bricks in a temple. 
Stones, actually, but we don't build with stones anymore. We use bricks. The text is 1 Peter 2, 4-6. It says this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So here's the picture of union with Christ. Think of a temple of worship. A spiritual house, it's called. Like the temple in Jerusalem. It's a place where God's presence was to be particularly evident. A place where he is worshipped. Where we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That imagery of sacrifices be especially meaningful to Peter and fellow Jews like him. They were familiar with the sacrifices of an animal on an altar in order to have your sins atoned for or to give thank offerings to God. Except that these offerings he's talking about are spiritual sacrifices, not animal sacrifices. They are acts of devotion and obedience to God that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. They wouldn't be acceptable if we just kind of barged in and did it, but we have a mediator between us and God who who takes the sin out of it and makes us acceptable to God because Jesus atoned for our sin. So that's all going on in this picture here. What is the spiritual house built out of? This temple of worship. This, what's it made from? According to Peter, it's built out of stones, but not just any stones. It's made out of living stones. The first stone, the cornerstone, is Christ. Christ the cornerstone, chosen and precious. He's the living stone rejected by man, crucified, yet living, risen from the dead. He's the most important stone. He's the one that all the other stones branch out from. Now what are these other stones of which this spiritual house is built? That's believers in Jesus. You yourselves, he says to the church like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house where Christ is the cornerstone. So union with Christ is like being built together with Jesus into a temple of worship, a place where God's presence dwells and where he's obviously worshipped. Now, maybe that picture of union with Christ doesn't sound as good as the other ones. (laughs) Vine and branches. The life of God flowing to me in union with Christ. That's good stuff. Husband and wife, the love of God flowing to me in union with Christ. Very encouraging. Bricks in a temple? (laughs) What do I get from that? (laughs) I think it's this. This word picture tells us that when you are joined to Christ you are also joined to everyone else who is joined to Christ. 
say that again. When you're joined to Christ, you are joined to everyone else who is joined to Christ. You're all brick, bricks in this temple. You're all together. There's a cornerstone, and then there's all these other bricks. You, your Christian sitting next to you, Christian around the world, you're all joined. You're all part of this same building. Union with Christ is about having real community with other believers for the purpose of worshiping God. It's not just you and Jesus that makes up the spiritual house. It's you and Jesus and everybody else who's joined to Jesus. All the living stones connected to the cornerstone. This is a reminder that union with Christ is about the church. It's not just you and Jesus. There isn't just one branch on the vine. It's branches, plural. There's only one vine, though, but many branches. The bride of Christ is also not just one person. It's a multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus died to create a worshiping community to display his presence in the world. That's, why, that's what we should get, I think, from the image of bricks in a temple. Here's how it matters in your life. This challenges our independent, private, me and Jesus approach to Christianity that doesn't include being part of a local church. This challenges that. If we only had the first two pictures of union, we might think, I don't need the church. If I'm joined to Christ and I have his love and I have access to all of his fullness, then why do I need other believers? But the answer is that part of the fullness that Jesus gives you is the church. <laughs> the church is his body, which is another metaphor we didn't have time to look at today. And it's in that body of believers where you experience the ministry of the risen Christ in all the gifts that he's given to the church through the Holy Spirit. We aren't going to experience the fullness of our union with Christ without practicing it in the union in the church. That's what the image of bricks in a temple should communicate to us. I like the way Charles Spurgeon says it. I like to quote Charles Spurgeon when you want to say something really pointed, but you're afraid to say it yourself. But, but he says that it's okay, because it's funny. <laughs> Here's what Spurgeon says about, says to Christians who would not commit to a church. He says, there's a brick. What is it made for? To help build a house. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good-for-nothing brick. So, you rolling stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. So, Charles Spurgeon said that, not me. Okay, But I agree with it. All believers should commit to a church Unless you live in a place like North Korea where you have no options. We have options. We can. It doesn't have to be this one. But it needs to be some Jesus-loving, 
Bible teaching church on a mission to spread the gospel. That's what a spiritual house is for. And I know that people have had bad experiences with the local church. Some of you have. I have too. I've even been the cause of some people's bad experiences with the church. Just like marriage isn't always a good model of union with Christ, so also the church isn't always a good model either. But the answer to a bad marriage is not to get rid of the idea of marriage. Neither is the answer to a bad experience with the church to get rid of the whole idea of church. As imperfect as it is, the church is still what Jesus loves. It's the only thing that he said he would build. It's the only thing he died for. It's what he joined himself to and joined all of us into. We're better off if we're part of it because we were made for community, not isolation. Community is how we experience more of our union with Jesus. Let me finish with an application. Here's a fact. You were joined to Jesus the moment you first believed in him as Savior. You became a branch then. You became part of the bride then. You became a living stone in his temple then. Those are fixed realities that can never change, and they mean that you have everything you need to live the Christian life. You are loved and cared for beyond compare, and you are part of a community in which God's very presence dwells. That is fact. That is reality for the believer. But our experience of those realities does depend on whether or not we are living out of our union with Christ. Whether we really believe them and act as if they're true. For Hudson Taylor, it wasn't like he had never read John 15 before. He had read John 15. He knew about vine and branches. But he didn't find freedom and joy and new spiritual power until he started to believe and act upon that reality that as a member of Christ, he could take all he needed of Christ's fullness. It goes back to Paul's question. Do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. The challenge is to realize it. And then act out of that reality. So how do we realize it? Rankin Wilborn gives us a good starting place in his book, Union with Christ. Here's what he recommends as an exercise. Let's read what he says, where to begin. You begin by reframing the conversation inside your head. The constant voice that narrates your life, that begins speaking to your soul when you wake up each morning naturally talks in terms of I. What do I want to do? What does this mean for me? I think I need to. I, I, I. But you can practice the truth that Christ has married his life to yours by including him as your constant conversation partner. What should we do? What are you trying to teach me? Instead of a running conversation with yourself, which only reinforces the broken idea that I, I, I am at the center of reality, choose instead to converse with Christ about what you see, 
What you hear and read and what is happening and what you're afraid of. Just as physical exercise can reshape your body, so this spiritual exercise over time can reshape your self-understanding. And you will discover that Jesus truly is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. So what he's advocating for is that you start acting like Jesus is really with you and in you. You realize Jesus is not just out there somewhere, but he is in you by his Spirit. You talk to him. You process life with him. You think about what he wants to do today. What's his agenda? Why has he chosen to inhabit you? What does it mean to be a slave of Christ who is following a master? We start to ask ourselves that question instead of, What's on my do list that I want to get done? You ask, if Jesus is with me today, how would that change my approach to what's in front of me? And I think it would help to rehearse regularly the reality of these metaphors. Vine and branches. I can always take of Christ's fullness for my every challenge and my every need. Just tell yourself that. That is true. Marriage, I am always loved by Christ and never forsaken. He's a good husband, the kind that dies for you. Bricks in a temple, I am joined to a community of believers who are walking out this life in Christ with me. I have all this because I'm in Christ and he's in me. Rehearse that. And then we act on those truths. I'm going to do the next thing. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I have, this, I have this promise that Jesus is with me for it. And he will meet me in the moment I need it. So I'm going to do that next thing. Not in my own strength, but I'm, I'm trusting a promise that there's other strength besides my strength that is in me. It belongs to Jesus, and I belong to him. So I'm going to do that thing. And then when you experience the help of Christ in your going, your faith grows. And then the gap between what the gospel promises and how we actually live shrinks. And joy grows. May the Lord who dwells in us bring that about. Let's pray. This is what we ask for, Lord. More of you, more of your life. working in us. More of our resting in who you are, resting in the reality that we're joined to you. Help us for your glory, for our joy, for the spread of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.